Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 3. The following morning, while I waited the start of the police press conference called to scotch increasingly lurid rumours circulating the island via Radio Bombu, I decided to fill the spare minutes at the National Museum of History nearby. The previous Saturday night, it had provided an elegant turn-of-last-century backdrop to Brass Robbie's party, celebrating his latest reggae album release. But amid the Monday morning town centre bustle of farmers' trucks returning south from the early market, the pavement vendors and sightseers, the former courthouse promised tempting tranquillity and shade from the sizzling streets. I'd phoned Beryl Esperon, its chief curator, to say I'd dropped by and found her waiting for me. Of course you may see the exhibit, she said, and no charge for the media. She led me through the museum and upstairs to the largest room proudly designated for Creole cultural displays. There, arrayed among glass cases of ancient agricultural tools, domestic utensils, dusty knick-knacks and wedding attire from a bygone era, a story of African slavery and servitude, was one of especial interest. Though Grigri formed, for visitors at least, one of Mahe's unending sources of fascination, the collection of artefacts was modest. To many Sichuan, their country's unique variant of voodoo sorcery was at best an embarrassment, at worst an affront. But Catholicism, that had arrived in the islands with 19th century missionaries, had singularly failed to eradicate it, and in hushed whispers, the illegal invocation of curses and quack herbal cures continued behind closed doors. I surveyed the selection of items on view, the miniature potion bottles and packs of repurposed playing cards, and there, among them, was the particular item that now confirmed my shaky memory, a giant African snail shell with a sliver of paper protruding. I pointed it out. What does it mean? Do you have any idea? Beryl squirmed, waving a hand dismissively, her fingertips brushing a gold crucifix at her bosom. Oh, some sort of curse, she said. In the old days, people believed you could get the better of your neighbour or eliminate a marriage rival by seeking the help of the bonhomme tipois, the witch doctor. You could buy your luck or settle a score, and this was the kind of thing you paid for. It was all very long ago, the Lord be thanked. But some still believe this, right? I said. There are still people doing this. She frowned and started ushering me away. Well, so I've heard, those that have no Bible, perhaps. These are disturbed and dangerous souls. We should not entertain them. I thanked her as we parted at the museum entrance, and I could sense her invoking her own god in silent prayer as she watched me stepping blithe and free into the sharp sunshine. The press conference at Victoria's Central Police Station was well attended, 
Several of the journalists and camera crews from the previous morning had taken up places along one side of a long table in the pine-lined conference room. I pondered the inquisitions that the walls must have heard during another of the country's less glorious times, the dark years of the old one-party state, when political dissidents were interrogated to divulge their contacts and thereafter imprisoned, exiled or in several instances, simply banished without trace. DCI Dugas, DS Laulam and one of the police force's press officers entered and took seats on the far side of the varnished expanse. The PRO spoke first, introducing Dugas, sitting stiffly in a sweat-stained, short-sleeved shirt, eyeing the media gathering with silent circumspection. His expression yielded nothing as we learned the preliminary post-mortem results. Respiratory failure, consequence of an accidental drug overdose, was the presumed cause of death in both American tourists, we were informed. So, Dugas said, as you have now heard, and as Mr. Levine indicated yesterday, this is a most unfortunate accident, one of great sadness for the victim's loved ones. There was murmuring from the press group's side of the table, followed by a nervous pause before a reporter from Seychelles Weekly invited him to elaborate on the lab findings. The chief inspector muttered into the press officer's ear and returned his steely gaze to the attentive assemblage before drawing a weary breath to respond. I am informed the pathologist detected traces of several substances of common enough origin. I believe they were codeine, morphine and alcohol. These are readily available in numerous pharmaceutical preparations in the United States from where the unfortunate travelers had come. It seems quite clear the visitors had ingested these, apparently of their own free will. There were no signs of any criminal activity or struggle in the holiday villa where the deceased were discovered. The emphasis on the place of death was a deliberately pointed reminder of the ultimate source of most of our incomes. So this is not a criminal inquiry? I asked. Dugas stared at me, his lip curling almost imperceptibly. You are correct, Mr. Muirhead, he said. There are no grounds for supposing there was any foul play. Sometimes, perhaps when guests have been in particularly joyous surroundings, such as on a pleasant vacation in our beloved Seychelles, they can make foolishly fatal mistakes. Do you have a timeline for their movements on Saturday night? I pushed him. A further reluctant consultation with the PRO ensued, who selected several pages from a file before him and passed them to his commanding officer. As you wish, said Dugas with a barely suppressed sigh, taking a pair of spectacles from his shirt pocket and placing them carefully on his nose, all the while his gimlet eyes locked with questing coolness on mine. He leafed through the pages, appearing to select details from the handwritten script before him. According to our inquiries, a number of witnesses at the resort have confirmed in written statements that the Mrs. Bowski had returned in high spirits from enjoying a day of sightseeing activities in the National Marine Park. I believe there had been a boat trip, he said, accounting for at least some of the alcohol that the pathologist had detected. And thereafter, they returned to their villa. 
The Villa Butler confirmed that he had prepared a light meal for them in anticipation of their return, but they declined it and left the accommodation at around 10 o'clock when he went off duty and saw them proceeding to the resort bar. Dugas hesitated and surveyed the note-taking journalists. I looked up from my shorthand, urging him to continue. And then, Inspector, what next? I said. And there, they had a rendezvous with another guest, Mr. Dougie Summers, also of the United States, with whom they had been travelling. He is, I understand, a long-standing associate of both sisters, and was staying at the property in a separate villa. Uh, these ladies were, it appears, quite fond of the company of the opposite gender, yet I'm told Mr. Somers uh, was not the target of this attention, nor very likely to encourage it from any females, if you get my meaning. But notwithstanding this, according to our witnesses, I understand considerable quantities of refreshment were shared among these friends. At the Cabana Bar, I asked, seeking clarity. That is correct, said Dugas. I went on, in full view of other guests and staff? Correct again, Mr. Muirhead. They remained there for some time, enjoying cocktails. One can easily imagine, after a day of activities on the ocean and with empty stomachs, the potentially hazardous consequences of then, perhaps, self-medicating with prescription headache cures. This is the logical conclusion that one must draw, most sadly. May I ask what time the party broke up, I said. Dugas consulted his paperwork with a hint of agitation. It was quite late, I believe. Yes, I see the two witnesses confirmed that the man, Mr. Summers, extricated himself from the gathering and all displayed clear indications of inebriation. Two staff members were instructed by the bar supervisor to assist the women to their villa. So they could hardly stand, I said. That is a most reasonable assumption, yes, said Dugas. And when was this exactly? At around 11.30, I understand, replied the Chief Inspector. In my mind, I was replaying what Antoine Lavigne, the resort's general manager, had told me the previous morning at the property, confirmed by his executive chef. Lavigne had said he'd been scanning the evening's food and beverage figures with him shortly after midnight, when he'd been summoned to deal with the commotion. So the time of deaths, I said, slotting them into the evening's chronology, that would be somewhere between half eleven and midnight? Is that also reasonable? Indeed so, the detective said. And now, I think we have reached the point where we can supply no further information, only conjecture. This is not helpful. So if you will allow us, we have other inquiries on which to focus our limited resources. But one more thing, I said. Are you quite sure that the group comprised just the Bowski sisters and Mr. Summers? I understand there was a dispute at the villa. Contributors to the Seychelles Whispers have insinuated that there was an altercation involving a presenter from Seychelles Television. Can you comment on that, Inspector? The Dour detective shook his head dismissively. 
You are referring to Miss Bella Cado, I believe. But as I have told you on previous occasions, Mr. Muirhead, you should perhaps exercise more critical thinking before making assumptions. Miss Cado had been misdirected. It was a simple misunderstanding. She went to the wrong villa. There is no reason whatsoever to suppose she knew the American guests or wished them harm. But she was also the worse for drink, or possibly something else, I said, recalling her performance earlier the same evening, stumbling through her newscast and mindful of her notoriety at Save TV. Rumours had long abounded among the station staff that Bella was a habitual abuser of all manner of intoxicants, from alcohol to painkillers, despite her public profile and single-parent status, or perhaps because of them. It was an open secret. Dugas was assembling the documents before him in readiness to leave. Miss Gaddo was not involved, Mr. Muirhead, he said impatiently. She'd been visiting some relatives there, and perhaps one should not cast aspersions in such matters. These were her aunt and uncle who reside abroad. They had been socializing together in the bar, and I am sure celebrating their reunion. It resulted in Miss Caddo letting off steam, according to our witnesses. But the aunt and uncle withdrew quite sensibly to their own accommodation, and at some later point Miss Caddo returned for further engagement with the family members and manifestly was causing some disturbance at the wrong door. She had a shouting match with Mr. Summers, I said. The Seychelles Weekly reporter chipped in that at least one witness had revealed that the sisters were seen with somebody else at the bar, a local man with dreadlocks. Dugas nodded mutely and rose. The resort entertainer, quite possibly. We have yet to meet him, but I'm sure he will say much as the others have. And with that, I thank you for coming, and I trust you will record this as a matter of tragic misfortune. As I walked back to the moak, parked once more in front of the basketball court that adjoined the police station, I ran through the blatant improbability of what Dugas had proposed, indeed insisted, was the innocent sequence of events that had preceded the deaths that Saturday night. None of it seemed to square easily in a normal world where coincidences were exceptional. To imagine that Bella Caddo, whose extraordinary on-screen performances could perhaps be attributed to dependence problems, was at the scene of two people's sudden deaths by sheer chance stretched credulity too far. The police had made their certainty clear, seeking to downplay events, even before all the witnesses had given statements. An unidentified raster seen with the drunken, fun-loving sisters before they left the bar that night, perhaps chief among them. I was still musing on these doubts, mixed with indignation at Dugas's obfuscation, as I arrived back at the beach house, tucking the moke into the shade of some overhanging banana leaves. I had not expected to find Sebastian at home during teaching hours, yet he was standing in a frozen posture on the veranda steps, a curious expression on his face. 
I braced myself for trouble, brooding as he had been the previous day about the unapproved abandonment of my assigned Sunday morning breakfast duties and still unwritten guardian copy. But he simply stood and stared, still dressed for work, a briefcase of teaching notes in one hand and his fist clenched around a hidden object in the other. You're back early, I said. Everything all right? He glared at me, motionless, and I scanned his face, wondering what could be wrong. Had he suffered a stroke? Had he lost his mind or lost his job? The unlikeliest of possibilities for a diligent teacher who was equally feared and admired by both those he taught and worked with at the hospitality college. He was shaking. What is it? What's going on? I asked, reaching the steps. He looked down, presenting his left hand and slowly unfurled his fist. On his palm was a paring knife, the inexpensive plastic handle type with a slender blade. It had been thrust clean through a limon, the local variety of yellow citrus, rounder and smaller than its European counterpart. I stared at it, perplexed, then looked up at him. At length, Sebastian turned and headed along the veranda, with me in close pursuit. He sat down slowly at our rough little dining table in silence, and I joined him as he placed the knifed fruit carefully on the uneven surface. Do you know what this is? he said. Do you know what this means to people like me, to Seishawa Island people? I shook my head. No idea, I said, but I had guessed. This is a warning, a very serious warning, he said. This is Grigri, Patrick. It was sent to me at school. I found it in my locker. And this, he pointed at the artifact again, this is not what I had in mind when I married you. You think I sent it? Of course not. But this is what happens when people like you who don't understand my country start meddling in its affairs. You have no idea. Someone or something is watching you, threatening us. And now we are in great danger. Though sceptical, I felt chastened and edgy, and immensely relieved that discretion had once proved the better part of valour, such that I had not yet disclosed the earlier discovery of the snail shell. I rose to make us both a medicinal cup of English tea. As I turned, Sebastian spoke again. The life I want with you is a quiet one, drama-free, he said quietly. Just an ordinary family life. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. Hello, everyone. 
My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.